Father God, we just ask that you take this time, Lord, that you shape our hearts. Lord, let us repent of what must be repented of, Father. Shape us, chip us, mold us, encourage us, break us down, build us up, wound us, and heal us, Father. I pray in these next few moments, Father, you do a work in our hearts, Lord, that we could hardly fathom you being able to do. How can you do all this work all at once? Well, you are God, and I pray that we will sit happily under your reign now and sit happily under your word, and that we will feast and enjoy and we will grow. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. The term expert has become an overused and ambiguous title today. The term used to refer to someone who holds experiential and comprehensive insight on a certain topic or a question, and who, therefore, is to be listened to as an authoritative standard. To become an expert in one's field was a hard-won honor given to only a few and gained after many, 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 many years of on hands-on experience and learning. Experts were respected because their exploits had gained them a reputation, a public reputation of credibility among their peers. Now, by contrast, nowadays, it seems expert can virtually mean anyone as long as they have an opinion and know the jargon. Whereas experts were once looked at as the standard of authority on a certain question, the latest tendency is to treat all opinions, especially mine, as expert advice. Now, this sad broadening of the term expert has led to individual pride. And sometimes, listen carefully to this, sometimes pretended omniscience. Meaning that the humble confession... I don't know is rarely heard in our day. Let me give you a couple examples. If you really want to know what's happening with the Dallas Cowboys, just ask me. Though I have never personally met a Dallas Cowboy in my life, I've never been in the coach's conference room, my fantasy football team would tell you that I actually don't know that much about professional football and I've only been to a handful of games in person and standing room only at that. But I'll tell you what's really happening with the Dallas Cowboys. How about this one? If you really want to lose weight, come talk with me. I mean, sure, my weight's beyond what it probably should be, and I rarely skip dessert. I have to have a friend make my workout plan, and it takes massive accountability to get me into the gym in the first place. But I can give you all kinds of expert advice on how to lose weight. My friends, these are some of the rather funny examples in our lives, right? To, to get expert advice about parenting from people who have never been parents or expert advice about what the police need to do who have never held a gun or seen the police or expert advice about racial reconciliation from people who do not have black friends or any friends or uh, out in the community or anything like that. That was Freudian slip. There you go. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, is we like to be experts. We like to be in the know. We like to be those that have this deep insight, and we like to have a self-made expertise. Now, here's the danger of it. 
What happens when we bring this tendency to be self-made experts who do not humbly confess when we don't know, who claim to have insight that nobody else has? What happens when we bring that same kind of tendency to our relationship with God and our knowledge of the kingdom of God? Do you see how dangerous that can be? The parables in Matthew 13 remind us that when it comes to the truths of the kingdom, when it comes to the, the, the most important part of our lives, the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to our one and only hope, the kingdom of heaven, there is only one expert. And we must come humbly to him if we are to know and have the hidden kingdom of God. Jesus is the only authoritative standard. And he alone can reveal the ancient truths of God. And without him, we have no insight into God's plan. Without Jesus, we have no insight into God's work in the world. Without scripture and God's revealed word, we have no insight into God's reign in the world. We have nothing on our own. We therefore must be humble people who lay down our self-given titles of expert and learn from him, the king who knows his own kingdom. My friends, I have one goal today, just to see all of us walk out just a little humbler, just to see us stop being experts about everything and begin to realize that we're dependent on one for our knowledge. We are not grown-ups. We are children in the kingdom of God, and that's good news. Because God doesn't reveal the good, the good truths of the kingdom to grown-ups. He reveals the truths of the kingdom to children, to people who are humble, who come to him and say, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's best for my kids. I don't know how to talk to people in the way I should. I don't even know how to love my wife well by myself. Can you teach me? Can you make me a student? Ba- bow down my pride. Break down my expertise. I don't know. And so I need Jesus. I need God's word. I need him to wash over with his insight, not my own. Now, I think if we come with that kind of posture, I think we'll be more reflective of what the kingdom actually is. Not a bunch of talking people who have lots and lots and lots and lots of opinions endlessly on every given subject because we know but people who begin to speak the word of God and to humbly depend on our Savior, Jesus Christ. My friends, I don't think anyone here would say that they do not need Jesus, that they do not need the Savior to make known the kingdom. But my friends, that's true of every single aspect of life. Let's not underestimate how dependent we are on him. Now, in the last section we looked at Jesus' first parable, the parable of the sower and the soil. And then this section, we're going to look at six parables. The reason why we're looking at these six parables is if you pay careful attention, and you should see this in your notes, it forms a, a chiasm. Now, if you don't know what a chiasm is, it's a literary tool that are intentionally structured to highlight or emphasize a, a central truth. The first part of the chiasm mirrors the last part. And in turn, this mirroring serves to highlight or elevate a central truth, which is in the middle. So you can see this in your notes. Here's what we see in Matthew 13. Jesus gives the parable of the weeds and the wheat, which is a parable about separation. He gives that 
very similar parable, uses even some of the same terminology in the parable of the net at the end of this section. And he talks about the mustard seed and the leaven, both of which talk about the hidden nature of the kingdom. And then the parable of the hidden treasure and pearl, again, the hidden nature and hidden value of the kingdom. Then right in the center of this cosmos is the most important truth. My friends, learn to love this truth. Learn to love this truth. I, I just want to de-escalate things for now. My friends, we're not bringing politics in. We are not bringing uh, questions about COVID in right now. We're looking at the central truth of why you're dependent on Jesus for all truth. Okay? That's the central point of this parable, that only Jesus is the one who has insight to his own kingdom. He is the king. Now, how often do we come into our religion, our our self-made Christianity saying, oh, we, got, we have insight. And yet you go to look and it's not even there in scripture. Your insight, your opinion, your thoughts, you can't find them. We quote so often, well, you know what it says in the good book. Well, I don't know what good book you're reading, but I don't know where it says that. So we have to form and mold ourselves around the centrality of Christ being the perfect and only teacher of truth. So like I said, in the first parable and the last parable, you're going to see things like both of them talking about the end of the age, both of them talking about angels who separate the evil from the righteous, and both speak of a fiery furnace. The main point of these parables, these two parables, is that there is a separation coming at the end of the age. The kingdom is bringing a separation between the evil and the righteous. And then we come to the parables of the mustard seed, the leaven, and, and, and we see this unimpressive, inconspicuous kingdom of God, one that you wouldn't look at and say, yep, that's the kingdom, that's what we need to be valuing. No, if anything, it looks small, unimpressive, it, it's hidden, can't be seen in your own sight. The, the hidden treasure in a field to everybody else just looks like a field. The pearl of great price is just scattered among all these pearls. It's not readily seen, readily known. It must be searched for. It's not out in the open. So again, we're going to get to this this proposition that the kingdom of heaven is hidden, but still must be valued. And then we get to that middle point, central truth. Jesus' kingship is proven by his knowledge and insight of the kingdom. He is the expert we bow to when it comes to what is going on in the kingdom. Now, as you'll see in many of these parables, Jesus says something like this, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he provides a comparison. I think it's worth asking at this point, what does he mean by kingdom? What is a kingdom? Is it a place, like a realm? Is it a people, citizens, or is it something else? Well, in Matthew's gospel, I think you could see that kingdom is a place in some aspects. It is a people in some aspects. But more than anything in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven is a posture. Have you ever thought about that, about the kingdom of heaven? It's not just a place. It's not just a people. It's a posture. If you want to see this in Matthew's gospel, you just need to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Jesus prays, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You guys finish the rest of it. Your kingdom come. And then how does he define that? Your will be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. What does Jesus define the kingdom of heaven as? It is God's will being done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever thought about that, that the kingdom represents itself in your life as you continue to submit yourself under the will of God? 
that you want your heart to be a virtual heavenly throne where God's will and God's word reign supreme. Not your thoughts, not your opinions, not your ways of dealing things, but you want to do things the way God wants it done. That is the kingdom of heaven. It's a posture, and the key proof of it is faith, specifically in Jesus. Now, as it concerns the parables, the kingdom of heaven is God's heavenly reign, and those who live willingly under God's heavenly reign are his kingdom citizens. They are the wheat that is gathered into the master's barn, the good fish that are gathered into containers. Even when the world has rejected him wholesale and we seem to be the minority and things are hidden, still the person who is situated under God's reign trusts that all will be as God wills. He is king. The mustard seed, when it is small, doesn't envy all the big trees in the garden because it knows it will be the biggest tree in the garden. As kingdom citizens, we're not off-put by man's current rejection. We know, we trust, and we live in the truth that King Jesus will reign. Every knee will bow. Nothing changes that truth. And so in these parables which teach about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus gives us insight into the reality in which he desires for you, God's people, those who trust in Jesus, to live in this perfect will of God and to exercise that will in your life. So while we study these parables, the question then becomes, how do you see God's kingdom at work in your life? Now, let's just, let's, just, let's just pull out the scalpel for a second, okay? In what areas of your life would you say, yep, that doesn't match with the will of God? I mean, let's just ask, in what ways do we see God's heavenly reign in our thoughts, what we think about? If we were to just uncover everything we think, is it, is it consistent with what God desires and what God has said? What about our words, our actions, the way we say those words, the way we do those actions? Are they reflective of the fact that God is king? Is it his will being done in my heart as it is in heaven? Is God's will being done in my family as it is in heaven? Is God's will being done in my conversation as it is in heaven? Or is it my will at work in all of these things? If the kingdom has, not take, has taken root in our lives, if it has truly been embedded into our hearts and souls, the way we think, the words we say, the things we do, are walking, talking representation of God's heavenly reign. Not to shame anyone here, because there's definitely grace by the end of this passage, but just asking the bare question. If the parables were to remove the veil of our soul, what in your life does not match up with what you know God desires? And as kingdom citizens, are you willing for that kingdom to grow and to take over even that, to permeate everything, that there's no area in your life that you're not willing to live under God's reign, right? You see how quickly it stops becoming about superficial questions and temporary things and things that are going to only last for a few months or a few years, right? I mean, let's face it, the next president lasts for four years, eight years at the most. 
And yet that doesn't negate the way that we should talk and love and care for other people as kingdom citizens. That we want, even in that, for God's kingdom to be shown. You might have been married to your wife and, and, and you're starting to realize, man, there's things about her that I didn't see and I didn't realize that were there and it just makes it incredible, incredibly hard to love. Well, even in that, you want the kingdom to permeate and to bear fruit in your life so that it doesn't just change your wife, it changes you. The kingdom of heaven at work, the kingdom of heaven growing. I think so often we think of numbers and we think of places and we think of church plants and Rarely do we think of our progressive obedience as being kingdom growth as well. When people stop being so hateful, when Christians start speaking like Jesus, that the kingdom is growing even in that. So we're going to look at three kingdom truths now that we know what the kingdom of God is. The first theme in the par- seen in these parables is that of separation. Jesus tells the crowds the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He says this, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the explanation of the parable is not given at this juncture. It comes later in verses 36 through 43. But in his explanation, Jesus makes it clear that the sower is the son of man, the good seeds are the wheat, the uh, the sons of the kingdom, Um, the weeds that are sown among the field are the sons of the evil one, the harvesters are the angels, and the harvest is the end of the age. Now initially, the wheat and the weeds grow together, and the sower emphasizes that it does so necessarily. My friends, I just want to stop on this point. If God were to kill the first weed that he saw in his wheat field, you would have died. They necessarily grow together so as not to destroy the wheat. He lets them come up and pop up, and he doesn't impulsively uh, react to this attempted sabotage. He just patiently waits, and he endures. Now, I've seen some of your flower beds And I know some of you understand that parable perfectly. You're quite happy being patient, waiting for those weeds as as they're growing up among your flowers. There's others of you that can't stand that. You see a little sprig of a weed, and then you're like, let's get it. Let's kill it off. God waits patiently. If it drives you nuts to see uh, weeds growing in your flower bed, think of how much more... It is difficult. I don't know if it's good to say that something's difficult but for God, but I, just, I can only imagine how a perfect and holy, sinless God who cannot even stand the sight of sin waits patiently as weeds grow in the wheat. We see this in the world. 
the children of the kingdom and the children of evil, well, we raise our kids together. We go to school together. We participate in politics together. We live in the same nations together. We work at the same jobs together. And for those of us that really, truly hunger for the righteousness of God, sometimes it feels like a heavy burden to deal with all this evil that we see in here. When will God eradicate evil? When will God make it so that we will no longer have to endure a fallen world? When will we no longer have to live in fear and in danger and deal with all this uh, terrible oppression that we see? Well, Jesus comforts us. He says that a day is coming that the wheat will be divided from the weeds. He says a very similar parable in verses 47 through 50. Various fish swimming in the same ocean. The kingdom casts its net. It pulls up both good and bad. And then the fishers separate the good from the rotten. The rotten are thrown away, symbolizing, symbolized by a judgment of a fiery furnace. And the good are kept in containers. Now, in both, these, in both of these, this is what we need to hear. In both of these parables, Jesus shows that the kingdom is bringing a division. It's not bringing a division of red and blue. It's not bringing a division of ethnicity. It's not bringing a division of socioeconomic background or gender or age. It is bringing a division of those who are good fish, rotten fish, wheat and weeds. There are some red weeds, some blue weeds, right? There's some good and there's some rotten. That's not the division. The division is one's response to the kingdom. That's the separation that is coming. It's coming, and when the kingdom comes to its fruit, full fruition, all the causes of sins and all lawbreakers will be gathered up out of the kingdom. Now, I can just, I, I don't know if I can, I've told you this before, but I can hear thoughts sometimes. Um, not really. It's just you guys say things around my kids, and they come and tell me. Um, but I can hear someone hearing this, right, parable, and, and our initial reactions, we, we so quickly jump to celebrate the judgment of the lawbreakers at the end of the age, and we, we smile, and then we start thinking about certain people we'd like to see this happen to. Maybe some names of politicians come up. Maybe some, some old family members that you couldn't stand. Maybe ex-spouses come to mind, right? Oh, before you so quickly jump to that, I just want to give you a couple of thoughts to think through. First, we should recognize that without God's grace, we are those who deserve to be thrown into the fiery furnace. My friends, let me ask you this. Have we not all been lawbreakers? Is there anyone so bold to say that they have not broken God's law? I mean, the Bible clearly says in James 2.10 that anyone who breaks the law at even one point breaks it all. So if you have ever lusted, you've broken the whole law. If you've ever been unjustly angry, you've broken the whole law. You are a lawbreaker. Now let me just re-describe the parable for you. Jesus doesn't say that he's dividing up those mostly decent people who have good morals, but a few minor character deflect, defects from those who are really bad. He doesn't say that. He says he's gathering up all lawbreakers. But here's the question. If all people are natural lawbreakers, how is it that anyone is saved from the impending judgment? 
We are all weeds, naturally. So how is it that we have become wheat? My friends, I want you to hear this. How is it that you are not the wheat that is bundled up and thrown into the fiery furnace? How is it that you are not the bad, rotten fish that gets thrown away? You can only answer that question if you have read your Bible and know that it is by the grace of God. Who has transformed themselves from a weed to a wheat? Who has made themselves from a rotten fish to a good fish? No one. We all stand here under the grace of God. And but for the grace of God, there go I into the fire. My friends, we read parables like this and we're like, yes, judgment of the wicked. Instead of being the real, having the real response that we're called to. Thank you, God, for not judging me and my wickedness. My friends, we, we, we celebrate the death of the wicked. But we forget, oftentimes, to be thankful that God has saved us from death. And that by doing that, we have neglected to see just how much grace that we are under. We have become the sons and daughters of the kingdom. It doesn't lead to your boasting. It doesn't lead to your condemnation of others, but to thanksgiving. Now, second... I think this is, to me, this was one of the best parts of the, the, the text. The promise that he's going to gather up all the causes of sin. All the causes of sin. It brings, it brings great joy to my heart to think about that. The, in Greek, the word can mean stumbling block. And it sounds a lot like our word for scandal. Ta scandala. As the judgment day comes, when the judgment day comes, it doesn't just mean that the wicked are going to be judged but it also means the eradication of everything that tempts God's people. The consummation of the kingdom will mean that all your devices, all my devices, are destroyed. Now, I think we're, we're celebrating in our minds sometimes these image of people who are getting judged because of their wickedness. Instead of celebrating the even better truth, you will not have wickedness anymore. You will be saved from everything cursed. You will be delivered from every single thing that serves as a temptation. We need this great separation to come, not so that we don't have to live with wicked, sinful people anymore. We need this separation so that we can be separated from our own wickedness. I mean, think about it. We need this to come so that we can have friendships without envy that we can say words without insincerity. So we could stop being so prideful. So we could have hearts that don't have secret motives and thirst for selfish gain. Imagine a day when all of our scandals, all of our stumbling blocks are removed from our lives. Lust will no longer be an issue. Addiction will no longer ruin relationships. Hatred will no longer pour from your mouth. Unrighteous anger will no longer haunt your thoughts. Gossip will no longer linger in the air. Distrust of your brothers and sisters who agree in the same Savior will no longer be there to ruin that relationship, but instead will turn into perfect love and you will no more have idols occupy the private places of your heart. Now, my friends, when I read this parable, it's not just a separation from the righteous from sinners, because we are sinners, right? We're saved, and then we're declared righteous in Christ. It's also a separation of the righteous from their sins. My friends, we're simultaneously sinners, 
and righteous. And one day we will just be righteous. Just be righteous. Now when you read this parable, what do you want more? Let me ask you, if I were to say, put, if I were to give you all a piece of paper and say, write down the name of the worst person that you cannot imagine ever coming into the kingdom of God. And do you, do you see that possibly that person, by faith in Jesus and repenting, can become the worst kind of weed to becoming a very fruitful weed? I mean, Paul, the Apostle Paul is a clear example of that, right? I mean, this is a guy slaying people like you, killing people like you, and yet, from weed to wheat, rotten fish to good fish, all by the grace of God. So, so I don't think we need to so presumptively preemptively come in and say, let's throw rocks at all these dirty sinners that are going to be cast out of the kingdom. No, instead, we should be praying for and thinking about the even greater truth that there will be no more sin. That I can have a perfect relationship with people, finally, without all my junk getting into the way. I can be perfectly humble, Without ever again having to struggle with pride. My friends, that's what this parable is teaching. It's not just separation from people to people. Yes, that will come. But that little, that little detail and all the causes of sin brings the good news that it won't just be separation from the, between the righteous and the wicked, but even a separation from the righteous from their own wickedness. We should pray and long for that. What a great division that is going to be. So as burdened as you are by the evil of the world, my question is, are you burdened by your own evil? When you say, I can't wait for God to separate all this evil out and eradicate it from the world, do you bring it home to yourself? Do you ask that question? I can't. All those, all those people that are sexually immoral and are trying to... to, to you know, tarnished marriages in a nation. Well, do you do the same thing when you open up your computer to watch pornography? All those angry rioters. Well, do you do it when you riot through your kitchen flinging stuff because your spouse has made you mad? My friends, the word cuts deep. If you feel cut, it's the word of God convicting your soul for this. You are not here to hear what you want to hear. You are here to hear what you need to hear. And what you need to hear, there is a division coming. And the great division that we're praying for is that we will have no more sin. Kingdom truth number two. The parables of the mustard seed and leaven and the hidden treasure and the pearl teach us that the kingdom of God is at least initially inconspicuous and unimpressive. I mean, you think about a mustard seed. He says it's the smallest of all seeds. You think of leaven. It's not even seen. It's hidden into the three, three measures of flour, which is about eight and a half gallons of flour. That's a lot of flour. I mean, it's not, it's not like an equal, equal equivalent here. I mean, this is just a little bit of leaven in eight and a half, eight and a half gallons of flour. And so it has a pretty unimpressive beginning. I mean, seriously, you, you look at even, even our church, we're, we're not that impressive by and large. I mean, it just has an unimpressive beginning. The mustard seed, though, still, though it was small and the smallest of all seeds, Jesus says becomes larger than any of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, the last phrase, Ezekiel 17 uh, might come from Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24. 
where that same parable is used. God's going to take a twig, plant it, grow it into a tree, and then the nations come and take refuge in its branches. So it's very possible that Jesus has got his mind on that text from Ezekiel 17 when he uses this parable. In the garden of the world, the kingdom of heaven grows, and here's the thing. Nobody cares. It's small, it's relatively unseen, and yet one day, it overshadows it all. One day, it's the tallest tree in the garden. Lady sprinkles a little bit of leaven, and it's hidden. Nobody cares until the batch comes out, and you find out that it's leavened the whole lump. And so the hidden kingdom of God will eventually permeate it all, overshadow it all, Jesus' ministry looked very much like that. It it was unimpressive. The kingdom dawned as the Son of God became a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough. He grew up in Nazareth of all places, was a carpenter of all things. He was not a soldier or an important politician in Jerusalem or Rome. The kingdom was displayed on the cross, not on a throne, through death, not through an abundant conquering life. He died. He bled. That was altogether unimpressive. My friends, the kingdom began with a dead Savior. And it wasn't until the resurrection that we had the confidence to say, but his kingdom will be the largest of them all. His kingdom will permeate it all. My friends, don't let your eyes tempt you into thinking that just because things look bad, that God's losing the fight. Just because the world doesn't look like the kingdom is growing doesn't mean that's true. There are people in places all over the world where people are coming and submitting themselves to the kingship of Jesus. In radical places, in incredible places, the kingdom is growing steadily and surely. It doesn't need your help. God will do it. Now, there's things that we do to partake in it, and as you share the gospel, the kingdom's growing in your life. That's just proof that God is growing his kingdom. But the kingdom is growing, and you can rest assured that regardless of what happens, his kingdom will swallow up all others, and his kingdom will stand forever and ever and ever. Now, the second couplet of parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl, continue that theme of hiddenness. Um, you, you see a field, it's just a field. It just looks like a, a field. It's not that impressive. It's probably overgrown or whatever. Well, a man finds a hidden treasure, he reburies it, and then he goes, he sells all that he has, and he buys the field. And these people are looking at this guy like he's crazy. Dude, you're selling your 55-inch television. I don't even know if that's a real size, but you're selling your big screen television. You're selling your signed Dallas Cowboys football, you're selling your politics, you're selling your desires and your opinions to have this field. But the man smiles because he knows it's not just a field. There be hidden treasure there. My friends, why are Christians willing to die in other countries of the world? Is that just reckless? Why are we willing to shut our mouths sometimes so that what we think isn't heard, but what God thinks is heard? Why, why do we do that? Why, why not just say what we want to say? Why do we forgive incredibly hurtful things 
so that the gospel can be heard? Why not just hold on grudges and be angry and maybe take matters in our own hands? Because here's the thing. What looks like to be just a field is actually a hidden treasure. We will sell it all. Our anger, our personal opinions, our, our own insight in order to have the kingdom of God. Because that's what we need. That's what it's all about, is the kingdom of God. We allow it to permeate every aspect of our lives. We find the pearl of great price, and we're like, take all the other junk. Just give me the pearl. I mean, how often have we found ourselves doing that? My friends, we are relatively arrogant people. Just by nature. We think we know what's important when in reality our lives show that we may not have as much of a clue as we thought we did. I mean, I find myself all the time realizing that I esteem God's will, my own will above God's. Sure, I value God's kingdom some days, and I value my own at others. I prefer comfort much more than I prefer personal holiness just by my own nature. So the question is, is do we see the kingdom in our lives growing so that we have, we have it such, in such a way that we're willing to give it all, to give it all in order to obtain the kingdom? Or are we clinging to all these other things? We get angry, we get mad, and we say, that's not what I'm doing. It absolutely is what we're doing if we do not give it up for the sake of the kingdom. We come now to the final central truth, and then I'll uh, let you guys go about your day. Only in Jesus can the hidden kingdom be known. Verses 34 and 35 say this. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, in Matthew 13, at the beginning of it, in, the, in verses 11 through 15, Jesus said that his purpose for speaking in parables was to blind those who thought they saw, to deafen those who thought they hear. Um, but now he says that the purpose is, Matthew says that the purpose is to fulfill prophecy. And he talks about Psalm 78, in which Asaph, a priest and psalmist, declares God's work to Israel. And he says, I will open my mouth in parables. And then in Psalm 78, Asaph goes down the list of all God's work. And goes down the list of all that God has done. And it climaxes at the very end of Psalm 78. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, and, brought, and he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. My friend, for Asaph, the climax of God's work in the world, if you want insight into what God's doing in the world, the climax is the enthronement of a Davidic shepherd. Now Matthew takes that same text and he applies it to Jesus. Matthew's point is that Jesus is king. He holds and has insight into the ancient hidden truths of the kingdom. It is only through him that the hidden kingdom is unveiled. There are no side doors to the kingdom. There's no way that you can Google your way into the kingdom. There's no experts that can help you find a different path into the kingdom. There's one door into the kingdom, and all must bow to come into it. That's it. The parables teach us many things. 
But the primary thing is it teaches us how to be humble people. My friends, I rarely do this, but I'm just going to ask you to stop for a moment. Let me stop preaching. And can we pray that this last point will sink into our hearts? Will you just for a moment just close your eyes? And I want you to pray. You may have already confirmed in your own heart. Or you may have already decided in your own heart this, par- this application has nothing to do with you. You have no need to apply this. I'm going to ask that you allow God to change your heart before we preach it. Because if I preach it, I will waste my time and waste yours unless we are willing for God to take it into ourselves. So let's just take a moment and just pray. Father God, we have explained this text. We have looked at the parables, Father. We have looked at the truth, and it's all been, I, in, in my estimation, Father, it's all been accurate to what the Word has said. And yet, Father, now we come to it. We come to the doing part and not just the hearing. Father, everything that's been said is all great and well, but Lord, you desire it to be in our hearts. You know the hearts of the people that are here. You know the hearts of the people who are angry and and uh, disagreeing with, with the things that have been spoken. Father, you, you have insight into people who may have zoned out in this time. But God, I just pray that at this moment, these words about humility will sink in. God, before we say that we don't need to hear this truth, I pray, Lord, that you will silence the mouth of our heart. Open our ears. Let us not be like the Pharisees but let us be like the broken disciples. Father, from the youngest child to the oldest person in this room, I pray, Lord, that you will make us, including me, more humble as we dwell on the application. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Those who think they see on their own, those who relish in their own eyesight throughout all of Matthew's gospel are seen as those who are blind. It is people who know that they themselves are blind and yet come to Jesus who are the ones that see. That's the great reversal in Matthew's theme is, is if you brag and boast on your own insight, the irony of it is, is you're the one that's blind and deaf while the one who depends on Jesus for sight and hearing is the one who truly hears and sees. That's why blind people see Jesus as the son of David. That's why disciples, fishermen, are able to see Jesus for who he really is and why these very intelligent Pharisees, these self-made experts, do not. They knew the scriptures. They claimed to have insights nobody else had. They paraded around the streets, relishing being called teacher, and yet, because of their pride, they completely missed out on Jesus and all the joys that came with his kingdom. Because they were so prideful, Jesus couldn't be talking about them, Jesus couldn't be speaking about them, his parables had nothing to do with them, his teaching had nothing to do with them, it was all for someone else, not for them. They didn't need him 
And as a result, they were blind. Disciples of Jesus, however, and we have a different posture. We are blind on our own. My friends, I've been to seminary many, many, many years, and yet every time I read my Bible, the more I realize how little I actually know about God. Sure, I know some big truths. Sure, my knowledge grows every day. But as my knowledge of him grows, God grows much bigger than that. I never outgrow him. I have had thoughts this last year that I really, I really know what's going on with this whole COVID thing. And we've, we've done that in our church, haven't we? We really know what's going on. We can see what nobody else sees. We do it with our politics. We can see what nobody else sees. We do it with our opinions on everything else. We, can, we see what nobody else sees. And if they don't agree with us, they're blind. But how often do we as the people of God come into the gate of the kingdom bowing low and saying, my king knows. God knows what he's doing in the world. I don't know who gave COVID. I don't know who started it, whether it's China, Bill Gates, or an actual virus. I do know this, that there's a sovereign God behind all of that. And it is just like a sovereign God to give us something that we don't understand to show us that he's not tame and that we must depend on him. Regardless of what your position is on that, Regardless of who you plan to vote for, regardless of what you think is actually going on on the stage of the nation, there are a few things that Scripture tells us. The nations are raging. The kings of the earth have set themselves against the king in vain. So whatever's happening on the stage, we do know this, that it will end with the enthronement of King Jesus. So I don't know. I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know what to think in the current age. If, 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 you, if you're someone who knows, that's great, go write a book, and then you'll go along with all the thousands of others of books that claim that they know exactly what's happening. My friends, put down your pretended omniscience and let only one be the know-it-all. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yet, Father, for such was your gracious will. Church, can I just call you back to be children? We have a month away from November and a lot of adultish talk is going on. We have a lot to go before the end of the year, and all of us are speaking like grown-ups, and you've never looked more foolish. Be children who sit under the sovereign reign of a good father. Doesn't mean don't state your opinion, but let it be an opinion. Doesn't mean say what you think you see from your vantage point, but just let it be a vantage point. It's not the vantage point, right? Let us just let the reign of God just kind of permeate in all things. I'm a parent, my friends, and I'm telling you, I've been a, I have a seven-year-old, okay? I have a five-year-old, a four-year-old, and a newborn. You'd think I'd gotten it by now. 
I have no clue what I'm doing. And it's only because of that that I might do something good. I'll be married for 10 years this weekend. (laughs) 10 years of marriage has told me I have no clue how to be a husband like God. I thought I knew women when I got married. I thought I knew how to be sacrificial. I thought I was not selfish. A couple of kids later, 2 a.m. wake-ups, mishaps, dead AC units, broken down cars have taught me, wow, I really don't have things figured out like I thought I did. I'll, be, I'll show you my own testimony of COVID now that it seems like things are starting to open up. I was scared out of my mind. And before you throw stones, you were too. There are some of you that didn't want to have groups gathering in your home. I was dependent on you to bring in life groups and all these things. And some some of you were like, whoa, whoa, we're scared too. We were all scared. I was scared out of my mind. I had no clue. I still don't know what this thing is. I don't understand what's going on on the stage of the debates. I can't hardly make any kind of coherent sense out of anything anybody says. But I'll tell you this. I am so happy in Jesus right now, knowing that it is not up to me. My job is to open my word, open God's word. My job is to live according to it, to preach it, and to die happily knowing that Jesus is king. All this will one day be in a history book, all the COVID stuff, all the presidents, and people won't care anymore. But Jesus will still be king even then. So my friends, if you will just think about how your pretended omniscience, your pretended expertise gets you into so much trouble, not just in politics, not just in in discussions and private discussions. My friends, relationships are stretched and on a fringe right now because of this. Entire churches have split over masks. Entire churches have split over red and blue. Entire churches have split over all these things because of these grown-up arguments. And so they do just like grown-ups do, and they divorce each other. We have a better way by submitting to the Father and to the King who knows better than we do. So put down your pretended omniscience. Put down your expertise and trust Him. Father God, I have taken enough of these people's time. Father, I pray that you will help us, Father, to be dependent children, God, and that we will not keep picking up our own expertise, God. God, we know some things, and it's easy to read lots and lots and lots of expert articles and all these things in life, but Father, the danger that I'm seeing in our lives is that we too quickly say what we know, instead of talking about the one whom we know. That we too quickly state our opinions before we state the truth that you have given to us. Father, I pray that you humble us back to be children. God, we will not be duped by the temptations of the world. We won't be blinded because you've opened our eyes. Father, we don't have to protect ourselves. We have a father. So God, I just pray, Lord, that you help us put down our desired omniscience and that we will just trust you in Jesus. Jesus is the one who knows his kingdom, not us. And any insight we have is only because of him. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.